Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. So I had to learn Japanese very quickly and phonetically, and it was easier to sing just because it's connected to a note. Uh-huh. And to this day, whenever I hear Sentimental Man come on, I can't even think of it in the English version. I literally go into like, I'm a sentimental man. Kokoro yasashi otokosa, takara hitsumo ochibu no beso sukushitai to omou, so alphabao mai no chikara do. Like the Wow. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's Editor-in-Chief, Patrick Gomez, and this week we'll be hearing from what we do in the Shadow Star, Harvey Guillen. But first, I am joined by our TV editor, Danette Chavez, to discuss the Tritics' Choice Awards nominations. Now, if you joined us last week, you will have heard us discuss the drama categories. Uh, but now, Danette, you're here to talk about comedy as well as limited series and movie made for television. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thanks for inviting me back. Of course, always. So the Critics' Choice Awards will be presented on March 7th, and we are still awaiting the film nominations, which will be announced if you're listening to this in real time next week. So, uh, you know, we'll be discussing those as well, um, but those will be announced on February 8th. For now, we have all the television awards, and as we mentioned, we discussed drama in last week's episode. But this week, we're going to discuss, uh, let's start it off with with the comedy awards, in which actually we have uh, Harvey Guillen as a nominee for what we do in the shadows. You know, I, I like to discuss shows that we are fans of at the AV Club, and, and what we do in the shadows is certainly one of them. And so it's so great to see it recognized, not only in Best Series, but also in Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actor, which is where Harvey is, is recognized. Uh, looking at this initial list, uh, Danette, what, what are some of your initial thoughts? Um, I'm very happy to see the Critics' Choice Association make up for what the Emmys got wrong and nominate uh, Better Things which was one of my <laughs> favorite shows of uh, 2020. Um, it's also interesting to see something like The Flight Attendant on here, because while it, it certainly made a splash since premiering uh, last November, like right around Thanksgiving, um, you know, you, you can never tell uh, who, who will have had the chance to finish something, you know, to have, like watch the show all the way through. I do think it's like, a, a zippy show, like something that's very bingeable. It's great to see Kaylee Cuoco also recognized for her work on that show because that is very much like that show works because of her. Like there, there's a lot of great stuff going on in that show, but she is just so, I mean, she, she's just so expressive and her timing is great. But, you know, you mentioned what we do in the shadows and that's, you know, one of our AV club faves. But a show that also just kind of grew since its premiere last April is Ted Lasso. That uh, really seems to be giving a show like Schitt's Creek a run for its money in the big-hearted TV comedy uh, arena. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, you know, it has a similar kind of just like feel-good 
feel to it. So, so it is, it's exciting to see that recognized. Um, but I'm also so glad to see, uh, you know, speaking of other favorites that don't get uh, as much love and attention uh, at other award shows, Pen15 being recognized in the best comedy series category. I, I think that that's fantastic. And we also have Rami there. And as the aforementioned Schitt's Creek, which is nominated, of course, in all five categories, uh, just as they were at the Emmys. And then you also get Mom in here on CBS. And we were speaking last week about how I think it's great that the Critics' Choice Association doesn't um, doesn't kind of drop series off that they appreciate just because they've been on for a few years. So, you know, I, I have to admit, I've caught episodes here and there, but I, I'm not a regular watcher of Mom. But I just in theory, I'm glad that it's here um, because it shows that the association is willing to recognize work um, that's well into its run and, and not be afraid of... of uh, of feeling, of seeming as though they're, you know, either stuck in their ways or, or kind of dated in any sort of way. You know, I, I think that we need to step away from that being kind of the the thinking there. Um, because just because something's in, in season 20 of something doesn't mean that there's not fantastic work being done. In fact, if something's in season 20, it's probably because there's fantastic work <laughs> being done. Uh, at least in some aspects of it. Some shows maybe don't don't follow that rule. Uh, you know, we don't see Insecure nominated for, for Best Comedy Series, but at the very least, we do see Issa Rae uh, nominated for Best Actress. So I, I'm glad to see it there. Yeah, especially since we now know the sixth season will be the final season of the show. Yes. Um, so, you know, we may even see that raise her her ranking, although I think uh, going up against Kaylee Cuoco, as you mentioned, but we also have Pamela Adlin from Better Things, Christina Applegate, uh, Catherine O'Hara, and, and Natasia Demetrio. Mm-hmm. Hoping I'm getting that at least close to right. So it, it, that's a, that, that, I think, is the toughest category. Um, all, of, all of these are, are stacked with some fantastic actors and actresses, but that that category to me is is the most competitive. I think that it's it's really interesting. You see a nomination from the Connors, which I think is actually done fantastic work and you know that series reinvented itself from Roseanne into the Connors and I think has grown into an even better show for that. But uh we see Lisi Gornson nominated here uh when lo- normally you would see Lori Metcalf. Um so she Lori Metcalf's not on this list. Um, but Lisi is, and I think she's doing great work, but that, that really surprises me as well as the, the nomination for Ashley Park for Emily in Paris, which I know obviously has its fans on Netflix, but we don't see it represented anywhere else on this list. Um, so that was a kind of a, a shock going through here. Yeah. Um, that one definitely popped out as well as, you know, no disrespect to the work that he's done on the show, but Andrew Rannells on uh, Black Monday, yeah. like, uh, for me, if you're, if you're going to highlight anybody's performance on that show, it's gotta be Don Cheadle. You know, I know that the, the second season in some ways, you know, because he's on the run, like in, in the second season in some ways kind of, you know, moved away from the lead character. But, uh, for me, if, if you're going to recognize anybody's work on that show, it's Don Cheadle. But, um, you're absolutely right that the best actress in a comedy series competition is, absolutely stacked this year. For me, uh, you know, I, again, my Emmy's deja vu, best limited series is just wild. Like, how do you pick between I May Destroy You, Mrs. America, The Plot Against America, everybody's favorite escapist fair from last year, The Queen's Gambit, and of course, Steve McQueen's, is it a TV show or a series of films, uh, Small Axe? 
You know, and you didn't even make it through the full list of no. the nominees there, which which are which are exciting as well. You have The Undoing on HBO, Unorthodox on Netflix, as well as Normal People from Hulu. I mean, yes, I, I, I have to add an asterisk to my best actress in a comedy series comment in that I was discussing those just among the comedy series. Because yeah. yes, once you get to the best limited series, like that list is just incredible. And if you haven't, you know, if you're listening to this and haven't checked out really any of, like, if any one of these you haven't checked out in at least some way to to see if it's for you or not, like, certainly do, because each one of these uh, are deserving, um, perhaps for different reasons, um, but but very deserving to be on a list like this, which is great. And then you have the the best movie made for television. The the uh, best limited series and best movie are separated, but then all of the acting categories are combined. Um, really quickly, just to run through those, you know, you have Bad Education, which we've discussed at length, Dinah, how we are both fans of that. HBO is also nominated with Between the World and Me. Lifetime has the Clark Sisters, uh, First Ladies of Gospel. Disney Plus is Hamilton, which we can, you know, we had a major internal discussion at the AV Club about whether or not that was even considered a movie or the, so that's an interesting in, inclusion here. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that in a second. But, um, but we have Sylvie's Love from Amazon Studios, which again, we can discuss, uh, including that here, uh, as well as what the Constitution means to me, um, which is a fantastic, um, was a fantastic stage production that was also turned into a special for Amazon. Um, but let, let's, let's take a moment to discuss, uh, because like we said, bad education, we both love. I'd love to see that, you know, do fantastic here. But what are your thoughts on on both Hamilton and and Sylvie's love being here for different reasons? Uh, it, it's interesting. Yeah, and I mean, what the Constitution means to me is another one. I mean, like it it had a similar. I mean, while it's not quite the same pop culture phenomenon that something like Hamilton has been, um, it had a, a similar journey, right? Where it was produced live, you know, it's a theatrical production that was then filmed and then picked up by Amazon Studios. And it's funny that the conversation moved past something like bad education and the whole film versus TV thing, because that got picked up by HBO, which we still, you know, in the olden times, we still, you know, kind of saw that as, okay, you know, that's, that's automatically a TV movie. What's complicated things since is that HBO Max now has its own originals. And because that's a streamer, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we have been designating those releases as film. So like it, it, it's just funny how much the conversation has changed just in the last year. Um, something like Sylvie's Love, we covered in film, which again, I don't think anybody ever, you know, really, I mean, even though it had a similar journey as bad education where it was just you know picked up by a streamer or you know like a a non or you know picked up by like a distributor that's not necessarily a film-based one so like i i feel like we're going forward we're going to have this conversation around some movie or show because the line just continues to blur and i you know i i think it'll it'll go on past the pandemic because I mean, you know, like I, I do think that networks and studios, you know, everyone is taking into account how people's viewing habits have changed. Something that comes up a lot with tent poles is that like you're ruining, you know, the experience of that kind of like large scale production. But at the same time, like you're also making that experience available to people who might not ordinarily be able to take it in, right? Like if you've got 
five kids, it's easier to watch Wonder Woman 1984 at home, although I don't know why you would, <laughs> than it would be <laughs> to take them all to the, you know, movie theater. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that I hope doesn't happen, and certainly it will, well, I say I hope it in the same breath I admit that it will, it is a bit of the gaming of the system of like where people feel like they're going to get the most recognition. So technically, Sylvie's Love could have been released in a, you know, a two-week limited run in New York and LA and then had Oscars contention versus being considered a made-for-TV movie uh, as it is here, at least. And who knows if a different, you know, voting body will decide in its infinite wisdom that it is that it is a movie and not a made-for-TV, you know, a, a normal theatrical release movie and not a and not a made-for-television film. So the, the gamings of the system is, is, you know, that's when it all gets, not that, not that giving out these awards is some sort of, like, wholesome enterprise to begin with. It's all about, you know, just giving attention and, and how, you know, sometimes networks campaign really hard versus other ones get lost in the fray. So all of that happens, so I'm not pretending it doesn't, but this just adds an extra layer of, like, gaming the system that, like, makes me a little disappointed. But one of the things I, I do want to acknowledge here is, is, you know, we see the big players from these films and and limited series nominated. You know, we we have uh, Hugh Grant and John Boyega and Mark Ruffalo, all the Kate Blanchett from Miss America, um, you have all these people from these these titles that we that we discussed already, but um, I, I do love that they were able to sneak in some other people. So I'll, I'll go through some of the people that got nominated that uh, their projects weren't. Oh, so we have Chris Rock um, from Fargo. We have uh, I mentioned Mark Ruffalo, but his is for I, I know this much is true, which uh, didn't get one of the bigger nominations. And and you have Michaela Cole from I May Destroy You. Uh, and you have Debbie Diggs for The Good Lord Bird, as, as well as uh, Joshua Caleb Johnson. Um, so you get double nominees there in the supporting actor category um, for a project that wasn't recognized uh, as one of the big ones. As well as, um, you know, the maybe the biggest surprise for me, at least, uh, is Dylan McDermott for Hollywood. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I feel like that's a series that people forgot even came out this year. So it, it's 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 surprising to to see that here as well. Yes. I mean... I, I guess there's always room for an acting nod, even when something isn't recognized as a series. But I mean, of all the performances in that show, that's not the one that I'd highlight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the other thing that I'll mention in terms of things getting nominated for the smaller awards and not the bigger ones is is we have it the other way around that uh, Hugh Jackman did not get nominated for Bad Education, which I think is a is a big oversight. I don't know how you nominate that film and not that actor, uh, similar to Kaylee Cuoco in The Flight Attendant. Like, without Hugh Jackman's fantastic work there, that film doesn't work. So it, that just baffles me that the movie could be nominated, but not the performance. But. Yeah, I I mean, you know, like... <laughs> I, I have nothing else to say there. I don't know. No, like, I I feel like, you know, there, there's always some, you know, oversight that we're reckoning with when we consider these things. But, you know, there, there's also just the sense of what these nominations get right. And, uh, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy is fantastic in The Queen's Gambit. Um, talk about a performance that drives the overall show. Shira Haas is uh, nominated once again. She also was nominated for Unorthodox, excuse me, at the Emmys. I'm bummed not to see Ethan Hawke on this list, but Glenn Turman is incredible 
in the fourth season of Fargo. And as I look at this, I'm like, mm, you know, yeah, like it stings that Hugh Jackman isn't on here. You know, I, I just picture him walking that hall in bad education, uh, both at the beginning <laughs> and the end. And mm -hmm. there's so many similarities, but he also, you know, just there are different notes at the beginning and at the end. But when I see things like, you know, Glenn Terman being recognized for his performance as the delightfully named Dr. Senator, <laughs> you know, I'm, that, 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 then I can relax. Sounds like a Riverdale character. Right? <laughs> you know, that, in, in, that, in that sense, I can relax. Um, what are your thoughts on these best talk show nominations, given that, you know, like there are a whole lot of Jimmies and they're, you know, that like late night remains very like male led. But these nominations are um, they're an interesting mix. There's not a Jimmy in the bunch, yeah. which is which is uh, interesting. Uh, we have DeSouza and Miro, uh, Full Frontal with Samantha B, The Kelly Clarkson Show, Late Night with Seth Meyers, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and Red Table Talk. Um, I think that it's it's so interesting to see a list that doesn't include some of like the big players there. You know, I, I think that, you know, making your mark in this in this kind of category is really, really difficult. So I think that it's it's fantastic that Kelly Clarkson kind of got entered into the fray here. The Seuss and Mirror do do great work. Uh, you know, they're just, you know, you could listen to them for days on end. So I think that's great. Samantha B has been doing I mean, all these people are doing such great work. You know, the fact that Red Table Talk is here, uh, you know, similar to Kelly Clarkson, it's been around for longer than her show, but they also, you know, are willing to tackle really interesting topics and and dive deep into them on that on that show, which is available on Facebook Watch. So the fact that anything on Facebook Watch even got nominated here, right. I know it's got I, I know it's got um, <laughs> Will and Jada Pinkett Smith associated to it. So the profile is high, but still, uh, that's that's impressive in its own in its own right. Yeah, I I was I was going to say that I wonder if you know the the gutsy move in talking about, you know, such, you know, I'm talking about something as personal as infidelity, you know, like talking about that yeah. with your superstar spouse on your talk show, <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't by any means, I'm not calling it a stunt, but, you know, I just wonder if that maybe elevated the profile of the show. You know, where it's yeah. like, oh, well, wow. you know, Drew Barrymore had Tom Green on and, and that made some headlines, but you do not see her nominated here. So <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they clearly, uh, they clearly, you know, they swung for the rafters. And, and, uh, I, you know, I, I think even without that, you know, they, Jada Pinkett Smith is able to get really interesting guests on that show. And I think that that, to, to your point, like, yes, her husband, and obviously it has her daughter and her mother on there, uh, every episode uh, for the most part, but, even aside from those uh, episodes, she's she's always she's always had like in, even if they're not the most high profile, like interesting guests talking about really really personal stuff. So so what they do there is is super interesting in the episodes that I've caught. But you know, as as a as a hardcore season one American Idol fan, I'm always going to be rooting for Kelly Clarkson. But I, I feel like it's going to go. Um, I, I feel like it could go to to. I feel like it honestly could go to Red Table Talk as the big winner. I mean, I, I, I do wonder how these like daytime shows hold up against late night. I just, I, there, there still is kind of like a quality gap. Um, or a perceived agreed, one. Agreed. I mean, they're know? completely, or at least it maybe isn't even a quality gap. It's just they're, they're two very different things <laughs> more than anything. Like they can both be great quality, but, but they're two very different kinds of, kinds of shows for sure. 
Well, you know, the the list of nominations uh, in the television categories also include Best Comedy Special and Best Short Form Series. Uh, you can check out that full list of, of nominations uh, online, of course, and then you will see them all presented and the winners announced on uh, Sunday, March 7th on The CW. Tate Diggs will be hosting that ceremony. And you'll hear us discussing the film nominations once those are out after February 8th. But Danette, thank you so much for joining us to discuss uh, to discuss these these nominees. I'm, I'm excited to see if... Some of our favorites get to win big on the seventh, and and you know I, I'm sure we'll be discussing in the office, and maybe we'll have you come back on after they're uh, announced to see to see what we think uh, that could impact any of the future awards for this coming year. But uh, I'm glad you were able to come for the nominations now. Absolutely, thanks again for having me. Perfect. Uh, well, uh, if you are listening, please don't go anywhere because we are not done. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, we are now going to hear from a uh, nominee that we just discussed, um, Harvey Guillen from What We Do in the Shadows, who has also just finished up a arc on Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, uh, which if you are a longtime listener uh, as of last week, you will have uh, heard my conversation with Jane Levy. But our senior writer, Katie Reif, actually is the one who got to sit down with Harvey to discuss everything that's been going on in his career. So let's take a little bit of a listen to that. All right, so I'm here with Harvey Guillen. Hi, Harvey. How you doing? Hi, how are you, Katie? Fabulous. So you have a guest starring run on Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. And in the show, you play a programmer at Zoe's Company. And I was just wondering, before you got into show business, did you work any office jobs? I, I've had tons of like random jobs. I, I, you know, I started working when I was six years old. Um, just because I remember I wanted to be an actor because I saw Annie on TV, which is full circle, which is so funny because yes. we did an Annie song. And when we're doing it in Mandy Moore, the choreographer, I just kept thinking to myself, this is so surreal. This is the reason I fell in love with acting because of the movie Annie. And I never thought I'd be an Annie because obviously right. it's a it's cast of orphans and, and it's in um, little girls. And I was just like, oh, it would never, <laughs> you know, that looks like so much fun, but it's all, um, it's not attainable. And then to do the number, I was like, this is insane. So anyways, but back to your question, I, I started working on six because I asked my mom if I could have money for an improv class that they were teaching at the local community center. And she said, no, Nicole, we don't have money for that. You know, I came from a low income immigrant family. So that was a luxury that we did not have, you know, mm-hmm. we were trying to make ends meet. And, and I, I just remember it was, I was frustrated because I was like, well, that's not fair. Cause I had friends who were would go to their parents and they're like, oh yeah, sure. It's $12. Here's a 20. Mm-hmm. And that was just not the norm at my household. And so I said, if I can get the money, can I take the class? And she said, yes, if, if you can find your way, you can do whatever you want. And I just remember that really like it stuck with me. Cause I was like, yeah, no one's ever going to give you anything. If you want something, go out and earn it. Cause it, it's more satisfying that way. And I just remember, I didn't know where to start. I was six years old. And one day we're walking home from school and I looked over and this guy was going through trash. And I was like, mom, it's so gross. What is he, what is he doing? He's like, oh, vende los botes. He sells the cans. And I was like, you make money out of trash? And she goes, yeah, you can recycle. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So I ran in her closet and I got a wire hanger and I hooked it and made it into a long, like skinny finger. And I went through trash cans to collect cans for my first improv class. So that was my first job ever. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. That must have been a lot of cans. A lot of cans. It t- I thought I, I thought I had enough after two weeks of going every day after school and on weekends to quinceañeras and uh-huh. parties that I would crash and people would get upset because I wouldn't even wait. They were done with the drink. I just I just like crash parties as a little kid and like <laughs> the park and I grab like cans like hey 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 what are you doing what are you doing I was like oh I thought it was empty like it's a brand new beer and I was like oh okay <laughs> okay here you go. <laughs> 
<laughs> you were like, give me that can. <laughs> yeah, and I was just pouring beers out and people were like, what are you doing? The angriest people were the people who were drinking. So clearly it was those people who lost alcohol. They were upset, but it was a soda can or something like, oh, no, I wasn't finished. Okay, that's fine. But it was people who were like, wait, my alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the lesson I learned as a child. People really do value alcohol. <laughs> yeah, so don't mess with people's alcohol and you'll be all right, right? Yeah. But as an office, I worked, um, I did work semi uh, theater office job, which was we did educational theater and we had to do, it was a corporation and it was through Kaiser. So it was doing educational theater for kids, but then you still had to go and like do paperwork in the office. Like today's classes were the ages of this and this, and um, this was the mileage that we did or whatnot. So like that kind of like, you know, the minutia of office work that was not for me. <laughs> it was just like, this isn't my cup of tea. It's like, I like the creative part. I like performing. I like being, you know, making people escape for a little bit. And I was like, that's my contribution. And I was like, I'm not really good at paperwork. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had a few different kind of, you know, jobs that I would just get off Craigslist before I, you know, started doing journalism full time. And I never lasted very long. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's okay. I think that, you know, we got to start somewhere. And also it's, you're lucky enough that you can go straight to your, you know, desired profession and love, but that's not the norm usually. And if you really love it, you stick with it because, Hey, I started collecting cans at six, but I didn't start really performing in anything until elementary school or the school play. And then even then I didn't really perform professionally until after high school. So anyone else probably would have given up and been like, Ah, I've been at this for like, you know, since I was a kid and it's not happening, but my dream was to be on television and movies and, and I just kept at it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is it true that things start happening for you right when you're about to give up? Was that kind of true in your experience? Maybe. I think so. Yeah. I I mean, looking back, I'm just a really optimistic person and I glass Mm -hmm. half full instead of half empty all the time to the, to the point where to a fault basically, because my Uh, friends were like, okay, you need to stop being so optimistic. I was like, no, because no, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll always be the optimistic one in the group because I, I, I just feel like I have that, you know, mentality and it's, uh, and it's, it's, infectious you know if you like think that way you surround people who think that way then things you know positive things will come your way and yeah there's always a time where I was like the last twenty dollars in my bank account and you know and I'm like I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay rent and then I book something it's like oh yay because people see you on tv and they're like oh I saw you but they're like oh I shot that last year you know (laughs) they just saw So they're like, wow, I saw you on TV. You're like always on TV. I was like, no, I'm trying to book a gig this year. You know, (laughs) (laughs) they're so focused on last year. I'm like, oh, that's great. That money's gone. Like that paid for the rent, you know, and whatnot. But yeah, there's always a moment where like, uh, you know, I'm sure people feel defeated. For me, I think it was probably that moment, like where you just don't know, but you always find a way. You're always like, you know, I'm always hustling on the side. Like, you know, you can teach or coach, you know, and I did that for a while even after being on a series, like you, you take on students, you know, because it's kind of cool to, you know, pass on what you've learned and to someone who doesn't, you know, know the business or hasn't perfected their craft. So it's always cool to to share that knowledge. And I love sharing that stuff because no one writes a book like how to, because it's no book is perfect that way. It's everyone's, mm-hmm. everyone's journey is different. And my journey is different than yours, but I can definitely tell you what worked for me, you know, and if that works right. for you, then it works for you. But yeah, yeah, I think, uh, you know, people get discouraged because, you know, it's just the world that we live in. Sometimes you just feel defeated, but 
you got to keep at it. And if you love it and you, and you can't imagine yourself doing anything else, and so I always say, if you can't imagine doing anything else, then do it. But if you can do anything else and you'd be satisfied and you'd be content, then go do that. Because why put yourself through a hardship that you don't need to? It's like acting is such a, a business of, of rejection mm-hmm. and, and it can get, you know, pretty tiresome and uh, you either have thick skin for it or you don't. <laughs> well, one gig that you had, you know, before you were on TV that I thought was really interesting. Um, this is something I learned about when I visited the set of what we do in the shadows last year. Uh, turns out you and I were living in Osaka, Japan around the same time I was teaching English. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) So weird. It's so random. You were working at universal studios performing. Tell us a little bit about that. It's such an interesting job. (laughs) Yeah. So I was still in school and we were told not to audition for things because we weren't ready. Um, I was at the, at this point I was at the American Musical and Dramatic Academy mm-hmm. and it was my freshman year there because I had just come over from the conservatory at Citrus College and I wanted, I was antsy. I wanted to see if I could, uh, you know, audition. They're like, no, you're not ready. And I was like, well, I've been trained for the last three years. You know, I think I can, no, you shouldn't audition. And I secretly auditioned. I found it on Backstage West. And I auditioned just for the feel of the audition, just to get the feeling of, okay, this is what a musical theater audition. And I booked it. And I had to go tell the dean. I was like, oh, I'm going to leave the like, no, we recommend you stay. And I was like, but isn't the whole point of this, you know, program to go out and get a job? <laughs> Why would I stay to and say no to a job? Like, you, you know, when you get out of here, you're begging for jobs. You know, as an actor, you're like, come on, I want to work. And I followed my gut. And as you always should, I just like, I had a feeling. I was like, no, I'm going to do this. And there was a contract to do uh, three shows. And it was Osaka, Japan, and it was um, musicals, but they're all through Universal because a lot of people don't know that Universal has the rights to Wicked, the musical, mm-hmm. the actual like Broadway production. Universal Studios has the rights to that. And so I was like, oh, that's so cool. It's Wicked and it's Sesame Street Live. And I get to like play with like Elmo, like it's a musical. So it was like three parts. Like my main show was Sesame Street Live, where I played basically a 12 year old because, you know, young, short, stout, chubby cheeks, you look like you're 12. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, I'm playing that. And then, my second show was John Belushi and Blues Brothers. And then they I had to grow a little bit of a, you know, five o'clock shadow for that. So oh, wow. I'm aging to that. And then I had to swing into the wizard or learn the wizard's track for uh, Wicked. And I was like, how do I go from 12 years old to a 30-year-old <laughs> man? And then now to like a 68-year-old wizard yeah. in, one, in, one, in the trajectory of one year because the contract was 13 months. So I lived there for okay. 13 months. So it was weird because I started off 12 and I, I'm living in Japan. I'm aging to 30 as John Belushi. And then I eventually had to learn the wizards. Um, I never went on for the wizard, thank God, because I was like, this is going to be ridiculous. It's like, you know, 20 year old kid playing a <laughs> wizard. Um, but I never had to go on. But I learned the Japanese song for Sentimental Man. But I didn't know any of this when I got there. I thought the shows were going to be in English. I don't know. Great. I was just young and foolish. But I got there and I was like, oh, the script's in Japanese. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, well, wh- where are the English? Where, 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 what? And they're like, well, of course, the show's in Japanese. And I was like, oh, 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 I have to speak Japanese. And I was like, yes. And I was like, you, we open in two weeks. And I was like, oh, okay. So I had to learn Japanese very quickly and phonetically. And it was easier to sing just because it's connected to a note. Uh-huh. And to this day, whenever I hear Sentimental Man come on, I can't even think of it in the English version. I literally go into like, I'm a sentimental man. Like the Wow. Wow. Great 13 months. I loved Japan. I love 
living there. I haven't been back since, but the people, hospitality, the food, um, everything. It turns out I was just eating sushi that wasn't like authentic. Like I was like, I don't like sushi. Then I got there and I was like, oh, this is sushi. Like, okay, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Whenever people are putting like cream cheese on it, I'm like, excuse me, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> California roll. <laughs> right, right. Um, So do you think that, um, you know, your experience in doing theater and doing these live shows, do you think that that helped you work in ensembles on TV? A hundred percent. I think that, you know, coming from theater where everyone puts in the work and usually it's weeks, if not months to put a production up and everything, you know, scenes are are spent with detail and whatnot and, and knowing your marks and being off book as quickly as possible all those things are, you know, a great thing to carry over to television and film and to work as a cast, you know, um, it takes everyone, you know, so it, it, it really did help working with the big ensemble, like, you know, going to Zoe's and uh, half the people there are from musical theater and half are not, but they all are cohesive and they all work so well together. So welcoming. They run a really great, you know, project there on Austin, the creator uh, was fantastic and, and, and just everyone was so welcoming and working with them. It just, it was going back to my old school days. Like even rehearsing with, you know, Mandy Moore, who's a brilliant choreographer and everyone else, like just, it was just insane to feel like, this is, this is so cool. It reminds me of school and everyone's helping each other. And then, you know, after the, someone does their number and you're a part of the ensemble because, you know, it's an ensemble show that, uh, you might not have a solo in that song, but you're there to support that person with their solo. You know, mm-hmm. one of, some of my favorite pieces are like, you know, Baby Did a Bad, Bad Thing, um, which I didn't sing in, but I loved being in the choreography and the chair choreography that Mandy uh, put for us. Like it was, it was so, just that alone was exhilarating. I was like, oh my God, I love this. Look at me. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm a Broadway dancer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do have one, big solo where you do sing and it, you're singing stronger. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> it, uh, it's such a cool number. And it's so cool when they told me I was going to uh, be doing that numbers because I, I, these are songs that are like, you know, gender benders, like, you know, you usually don't see guys singing that song or even seeing Melissa Manchester's don't cry out loud was such a treat as well. And I actually met her in college briefly and I was tweeting, I was like, I met her in college and it was so great to like actually get to sing her song. And then she tweeted me back and she was like, you did a fantastic job. I was like, oh my gosh, Melissa Manchester, you know? <laughs> I love it. And um, so the, your character on the show, his name is George. Um, there are some specific details to this character that um, like, I think some specifically Latinx details to this character like at one point you talk about like um cholula hot sauce and stuff like that like is that stuff that you brought to the character yeah i think that you know originally austin had written the part for someone he he said he wrote it for someone like a harvey guillen type and then i actually did it and when we were just rehearsing or even before i got to say we got to talk one-on-one about the character so we changed a couple of lines and originally like in the script it said you know, my grandmother. And I was like, he should say my abuela, you know, um, mm-hmm. and he should say this and whatnot. It's uh, it's important to to sprinkle those things in because representation does matter. And, and surely George could, you know, just be George and, and he could be Latinx and not have any sprinkles of, you know, anything in the script that, that kind of uh, directs you in that direction. But why not make it just a little bit, you know, of another layer to him and just, it doesn't hurt to like change that and sprinkle that in and, and it really does matter to people because I've gone so many, 
messages from people who are just like, you said it, you said this, or even with, you know, and what we do in the shadows with the Yermo, like small little things like buñuelos that like people catch that, you know, little detail that to the naked eye is just like, oh, I didn't even notice that. But to the person who's looking for representation, the person who's looking for someone that they see themselves in, it really does matter. And it makes a huge difference. So I'm glad that they they uh, they put that in there. Like you were saying, it's stuff that if you're looking for it, it it, it hits like a bag of bag of bricks, you know, swinging yeah. across your head. <laughs> like a bag of tortillas. <laughs> <laughs> right to the face, right? Right to the face. <laughs> it does. And it really, um, you know, and it's nice because for so long, you know, we were only given certain types for, not just for Latinx, but people of color were just given one dimension. And this, you know, for Latinx, there was always the gangbanger or the mm. housekeeper. And, um, and we're changing that. And, and again, not just for the Latinx community, we're people of color, you know, it's just, uh, we, with a narrative needs to be changed because for so long, uh, we've allowed that to be controlled of how we're perceived and how people of color perceived, um, you know, it's just time to change that. And it's not, not the world we live in. We don't, we live in a diverse world and it should reflect that on screen. Totally. Well, you mentioned when you were putting the character together that it was written as a Harvey Guillen type. Um, what do you think is the Harvey Guillen type? Do you think it's something like resembling like your actual personality? Because like your character on the show, I would almost call him a himbo. He's just like really sweet. <laughs> yeah. I. It's so funny that, yeah, it's a really good question because I think of it as, what does that mean? Because when you, when you think of me, are you thinking of the last project that I did? Because, you know, Guillermo and George are very different, you know, okay. and totally different. George is bubbly and is big eyed, you know, like, and, and Guillermo is quiet and submissive. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so they're totally different. So when you think of that, and, that, and that's another, that's a good question because I, I brought that to Austin's attention. I said, when you say Harvey Guillen type, are you thinking because you think I'm Guillermo? Because I'm not, you know, <laughs> like that, like I'm, I don't go home and that sometimes I get frustrated with, with some of the things that Guillermo has to put up with because myself as Harvey, I was like, I've never put up with this shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's your job as an actor to bring life into a character and, and people to believe it, you know? And so people really do love Guillermo and people are loving George, but they're two different people. So it's funny that you say that because it's like, I, I wonder if people are falling in love with the latest project or when they think of Harvey Guillen type, they probably seen an interview or just seen me or know me personally that maybe mm-hmm. they're just like, yeah, I like that. I just, maybe they just want to work with that person and personality, you know, <laughs> because sometimes right. you want to be around someone who's, you know, in a good mood at four in the morning after shooting 12 hours, you know, nobody wants to walk down the hall and see someone grumpy and just making the day go longer and worse. So yeah, maybe it's just uh, the, the personality over, you know, the, the characters that you play. <laughs> but like your personality in interviews and just interacting seems, you know, there is an element of that in the characters that you do play, I think. Yeah. Well, you're, you know, you always find yourself that there's a part of you in every character, you know, mm. there's just, you have to, there's no way you would connect to that character okay. if you didn't find them within you. Um, so yeah, I would, I would say so. And I'm glad that it is that, that maybe it is my personality that comes through the characters in different ways, whether it's over the top, bubbly, even annoying to the sense of George or, you know, or quiet and deary and still good, you know, good hearted with Guillermo. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of, you know, uh, George and Guillermo. So a lot of your specialties in the the work that I've seen you in are you do you do comedy, you do musical numbers, and you do action. And what strikes me about that 
is all three of those are really dependent on timing. Mm -hmm. So how, how are those different modes of performing similar and different in your experience? Well, I, I guess I, I credit everything back to training, just stage training, whether it's um, fighting and it's combat where it's, you know, it's like a ballet, everything mm-hmm. has a count and a beat and stay in just like comedy. Everything is in timing, you know, and comedy is set up for you and it's the rhythm of things. So everything is, you know, flowing and it's all connected to timing, I would say. And so the way that those three things all are cohesive and linear are timing and it's just over and over uh, and doing it right, you know, because if you're on the wrong foot while you're dancing, someone can trip and get really hurt. And if you're on the wrong fist while you're fighting, someone can get really hurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you if you don't set up the right joke at the right time, you're going to get really hurt. <laughs> Maybe your ego will get hurt, right? Yeah, your ego is going to be really bruised. So you got to do you got to do your due diligence and do your work and know how the, the joke's going to land. <laughs> Do you think that one of those is the most difficult or is it, like you said, it's all kind of a piece? I would say for me personally, um, I'm a mover, so I can, I can, I've been taking dance since I was little, but also you don't expect that from a, you know, a a short and stout guy, Hmm. but I, I move really well, but I I think that for me, I always take more time with the dancing and with the combat. Like uh, I can do really good with, you know, timing and whatnot, but those things I can, uh, I need to take more of, uh, you know, I I take the work home and I just go over the number over and over again. I, I, I remember for Zoe's, I just, Mandy Moore sent me the the link of you know the video to learn from quarantine because we were in quarantine before we started production mm-hmm. and I just wanted it as soon as possible because I'm a perfectionist when it comes to that stuff because I want to just get it down I don't want to be struggling up to the last minute with the number you know I want to get mm-hmm. it in the bag it's done it's locked in my memory it's good moving on and for comedy I would say I'm more lenient because I I've after years of doing it and you know uh, being funny I guess when you at school or being the class clown you kind of learn, you know, the, the tricks and whatnot. So with that, um, I think that just makes you good at improv and improv is a lot of what we do in the, in the show with shadows mm-hmm. and it just, uh, you need to, you need to be able to do improv. And so I've, I've gotten really good at doing that comedy element that we can just do it on the spot and do it, put on a show the day of, you know? Yeah, totally. But there is still structure and discipline underlying it, right? Well, totally. There is, you need to know how to, you know, again, set it up for your partner, how to listen how to time it. I mean, there's, there's structure to, to it. It's an art, you know, and uh, not everyone can do it. And that's why I always find it so funny when for our show, they, you know, encourage when people audition to improvise a little bit. And some people are terrified to improvise because they're great with, with, with words that are down, they're tangible and you can memorize and create a character and they're, and they're brilliant actors and comedians that way they can memorize a line and, and know where to put the line and have a punch or where to put the inflection but you can't do that if you're an improviser because it's all coming out of you as you're saying it. And you have to know how to time it. And, and, and not everyone can do that. People are terrified to be put on the spot and be like, okay, we're going to improvise. They're like, what? And it's like, yeah, it's like, no, I do well with the script. And it's like, no, improvise. So it's not for everyone. And it is an art. Improvisation is, you know, it, that's what people take classes, <laughs> you know, take classes mm-hmm. years and years and, you know, and second city and the groundlings and whatnot, because you have to be really good on your toes. 
Well, there you have it. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Push the Envelope. You can check out to see if Harvey wins big at the Critics' Choice Awards on March 7th. Until then, uh, we hope that you continue to listen to Push the Envelope for all awards commentary and coverage, as well as fantastic interviews like this one with Harvey. You can check me out on social media at, at Patrick Gomez LA. Uh, please remember to like and comment and subscribe uh, to this podcast wherever you are currently listening to it. And until next week, bye. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.